we're delighted that you've been able to join us. Uh, and it's great to have so many of you the, the, who are joining us for this very uh, thoughtful discussion around the futures in the state, the state and the future of careers education in Australia. Before we kick off though, we do have people from right across the country and I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands across Australia and pay respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and particularly to pay respects to and acknowledge the people and their knowledge from our First Nations communities and the work they contribute to ESA as we look to support young people and the full diversity of young Australians through their career journeys uh, as they think about what their future might look like for them. It's a real thrill to be able to in introduce to you Professor Peter Shergold AC. Uh, many of you will have read his report that, that he and, and colleagues authored uh, during the last uh, three years around the future of and recommendations for secondary senior secondary pathways. And for us to have Peter here to share his thoughts, both uh, what he was thinking at the time of the report and what's evolved in terms of uh, careers education and his thinking in that space since then is a real privilege for us and, and a real pleasure. Uh, Peter was an Australian public, senior public servant for two decades. And during that time, he served as secretary of the departments of education, of employment, and of the Prime Minister and Cabinet's Department. Since then, he served 12 years as Chancellor on the, as, of Western Sydney University, and he continues to chair the New South Wales Education Standards Authority and the James Martin Institute. And as I mentioned, he's written two influential reports on education in recent years, both of which have emphasised the essential role of career advice and guidance. Looking to the future, report of the review of the senior secondary pathways into work, further education and training in 2020, and with David Gonski in the same sentence, bringing higher and vocational education together. So without further ado, welcome, Peter. We look forward to your input and look forward to a conversation with you on the state of career education in Australia and where it may head from here. So thank you. Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I am joining all of you from the traditional and unceded lands of the Wadjuk Nyungar people in Perth. And I do recognise that many Indigenous Australians are denied equal education and equal employment opportunity, and that too many First Nations people end up last in terms of career progression. So I'm very pleased to be at this webinar that I've been asked to consider the importance of careers information, advice, guidance, and counselling, a, a national careers information service offered to young Australians within the school environment to help them decide their future. As you will gather, gather during my presentation and in our online Q&A, I am fully persuaded that a school curriculum should have three underlying objectives. First, to instill the pleasure the pleasure of learning in students, responding to their particular interests, complementing their passions, enriching their future lives. That, if you will, is the intrinsic purpose of everything that we do. But second objective is to help prepare young people to be active citizens, to be engaged in civic activities and in a profound way, help to underpin the functioning of liberal democratic governance at a time when those values are under real challenge from within and without. But the third purpose, in my view, is to help ensure that 
students are adequately prepared for a labor market, the future of which is very uncertain. And it's that third rather instrumentalist purpose that I want to focus on today. Because if we do not do so adequately through our education system, then I've got to say our students face a very precarious, uncertain future in which an increasing proportion are likely to be ill-prepared. And if, if they are ill-prepared, they may well drift into a casualized engagement with employment, may become part of an almost permanent precariat. People undertaking occasional low-skilled work interspersed with increasingly long periods dependent on welfare support. That's what we need to avoid. So let me begin with reminding us what our students face. Our labour market is being profoundly impacted by the interplay of cognitive technologies, often characterised as the fourth industrial revolution. We can see that routine work is being automated, being dramatically speeded up by machine learning and robotic process automation and the existential impact of artificial intelligence. Now, you know, at one level, we're, we're familiar with this story. At another level, it's something quite new. We're familiar with it because in the 19th and 20th century, we witnessed the low skills and manual dexterity associated with the repetitive tasks of factory labor being replaced year by year by year by machinery. And in Australia, of course, that meant that from the 1970s, much of our manufacturing industry uh, got swallowed up by global competition. Jobs went offshore based on relatively low wage labor, coupled with high levels of mechanization. So that's the part we're familiar with. But, you know, the technology of today, the technology of tomorrow, will challenge the traditional diagnostic and conceptual skills that turns information into knowledge. For example, you know, the acquired expertise associated, say, with medical practitioners or legal practitioners or financial service practitioners and so on. That expertise, which is often acquired through education over many years, can now be replicated faster and more effectively through the application of big data analytics. These are early days, but already, if uh, we've discovered that OpenAI's ChatGPT can achieve 60% accuracy uh, in terms of passing the US medical licensing exam, which is passing. We find that uh, ChatGPT can quite readily pass law exams at the United States' most prestigious law schools. So this is really challenging because at the same time, what we're facing is a whole lot of our clerical and administrative white collar skills, the skills associated with governments or large corporations, those skills associated with well-functioning bureaucracies can make often complex decisions 
based on the application of clear criteria, um, those skills can now be performed 24, 7, 365 by machines. So what I'm saying here is different because what we see now is these new technologies are threatening, if you like, the professional and the managerial structures associated with higher levels of education. But, but, we shouldn't be deceived by, if you like, the white heat of cognitive technologies into believing that the future of a knowledge nation depends entirely on those who are educated and trained for jobs in digital technology or cyber security or research-based manufacturing or modern construction or intensive horticulture or social media and so on. Of course, of course those industries offer new and exciting opportunities. But, and I've often had to persuade ministers of this, we also need to recognise that hand in hand with the destruction of old skills and re-emergence of new ones often undertaken online, hand in hand with that, many traditional face-to-face -face personal caring, personal support roles are actually growing exponentially. In order to provide assistance to our increasing proportion of older people or those with a disability or those in need of physical or mental health support, in order to provide childcare or social work or community support, or of course, education, human facing care jobs are actually increasing in relative demand. So in this environment, we're not quite sure how the interplay of skills of the head, skills of the heart, skills of the hand are actually going to play out. And that means career advice is fraught. However, in broad terms, we do, we do know with some degree of certainty a couple of things about the future labour market for which we are seeking to prepare young Australians. The first is that there is increasing churn in employment. People are staying in jobs, staying in careers, staying in industries for significantly shorter periods than was the case in the past. It's now likely then a 50-year working life, a worker on average will be employed probably in three to five careers, 10 to 20 jobs, a variety of industries. So we need our schools to graduate students with an ability to be flexible, to be comfortable with change, to have a capacity to keep on learning and keep on developing. We need to convey to students that career progression will depend not just upon the continuing acquisition of particular skills, but upon the adaptability to respond to technological threat and serendipitous opportunity. So that's what we do know, job churn. The second thing we know is that the types of skill characteristics and attributes and behaviours are can be identified in terms of how they can increase the chance of employment success. And these are the skills, incidentally, that if you look at jobs on SEEK, for example, that are increasingly recognised rather than jobs that identify, you know, vocationally oriented technical skills. And I don't want to be prescriptive, it's stupid, but we're talking about things like complex problem solving, critical thinking, 
creativity and imagination and initiative, analytic thinking, clear communication, the ability to work collaboratively as part of a team, and too often forgotten, high on my own list, ethical decision making. These are the requirements that are often identified, and I don't much like the term, as 21st century employment skills. They are the terms, quite wrongly, often identified as soft skills. Now, in ensuring that we teach to the curriculum, especially in senior years of high schools, we often, teachers often lose sight of those underlying skills that sit beneath the subject content, which is, of course, why I have suggested in my reports um, that we should, for example, introduce forms of learning profile. The aim being to help students identify, to help students measure their performance, to help students measure their development against those underlying attributes. Skills, which I emphasize, cannot just be acquired by students across the range of school subjects offered, but can be acquired in sport or drama or dance or can be acquired in the voluntary work they undertake for the RSPCA or most importantly can be un can be learned in the shifts that they work at Hungry Jacks. So that problem is, um, is compounded by a second even worse tendency that I see often, not always, often in our secondary schools, namely the unconscious tendency to privilege academic pathways. Too often our students are persuaded that there exists some profound demarcation between higher education on the one hand and vocational on the other, simplistically between universities and TAPEs, between formal study and workplace learning. And that approach, driven by the fact that ATAR is generally but mistakenly perceived as a measure of high school success, um, results in students being seen to believe that certain pathways into employment are more have more value than others. Teachers often unthinkingly assume that a well-performing student should be directed towards those subjects that are most useful for university entry. Somehow theoretical knowledge is deemed of higher worth than practical implementation. VET is too often presented, if you will, as plan B for those not good enough for plan A. But, and this is my key argument, we now know that that division between higher education and VET education is increasingly porous and that the labour market needs people with a range of technical, theoretical and practical skills. And that long-winded but I hope uh, important introduction is why that in the two reports that I've written on education, looking to the future and in the same sentence, I've given such attention to the importance of schools providing students with informed, considered career advice starting even in primary school, but increasing in years 9, 10, 11, and 12. That career advice can play the role, not just of uh, informing students and parents, 
Importantly, it can also frame the ways that other teachers perceive the value of what they teach. And as I've directed my attention to that issue, what have I found? Well, some progress for sure in, you know, uh, my future's just celebrated, I think it's 21st anniversary in 2019. Closer to home, we saw an important agreement between education ministers on a national career education strategy uh, called Future Ready. We saw the establishment of the National Careers Institute. In my reports, I came across pockets of really quite excellent practice uh, in some schools. But I've got to tell you, here's the truth. Nearly every time I discovered that, it was attributable to the drive and the energy of a particular teacher rather than because of systemic innovation. Too often I've discovered uh, great practice in careers education in schools is hero led. And if that hero leaves the school, then the quality of career education quickly diminishes. But my general and informed perception that was, whilst the quality of pastoral care at school had tended to rise over the last 10 or 15 years, in general, in general, career advice had fallen behind. Uh, too many government mandated careers interventions largely took the form of sort of flick and tick pathway planning. Certainly that's how many students saw it. Too many career teachers are frankly poorly trained, ill-equipped and under-resourced, and worst of all, they're undervalued. Too much career planning follows old and narrowly conceived paradigms of a linear pathway along a single career or profession. Local employers, local industries are too rarely engaged with schools in a systematic and strategic manner. And in this environment, teachers tend to advise on what they know best. And it's for that reason that higher education often becomes the default option. Students are generally given too little information about vocational pathways or certificate vocational courses or um, skills-based apprenticeships. Too few, few students are introduced to the increasing significance of micro-credentials to labour market success, are given too little help understanding the provenance and the value and indeed the limitations of badged micro-credentials. So in the absence of widespread high quality career education in schools, what do students depend on to make these crucial life decisions? Well, um, often more than one source, but Gen Z, the Zoomers born between, let's say, uh, 1995 and 2010, indicate when they're surveyed as follows. Around 50% of them say they get their career advice from parents. About 20% say they get it from brothers or sisters. About 30% say they get it from friends. Only about 25% say they get it from a career advisor. And I should, at this stage, comment parenthetically on two associated matters. Namely, given the importance of family, that school-based career counselling needs to fully engage not just with the student, but with their mums and dads. And uh, as I've learned in my interviews with students, 
there is a significant minority who've indicated to me that they would actually prefer access to an independent career advisor or career counsellor outside school because, as they tell me, they like the idea of being able to have a confidential discussion with an outsider beyond a teacher who they often think has already decided upon their capacity and their inclination. They like the idea of discussing their career future with someone who has less immediate knowledge or perception of their perceived hopes and ambitions. Now, I should note that um, about 40% of um, the Zoomers look for career assistance uh, on the web. And I actually uh, spent time over the weekend just trying to look at myself, how well I could use the web to find my way around. I would have to say um, that it was a moderate success. It was a moderate success. So over the weekend, I put myself in the shoes of students to see what help I could get online. I googled career advice. I looked for and found the My Future site. I was impressed by the range of tools available. I could complete my career profile. I, I could explore both occupations and industries. I could find a range of courses that might be relevant to my ambitions. And I was helped by a user guide video. I also uh, bumped into the Your Career website, managed by the National Career Institute, and would no doubt have wondered, if I was a student, if this was actually the same thing as the National Carers Information Service. I stumbled again, almost by chance, on the School Leavers Information Service, which I discerned was run by the National Skills Commission. And like I say, if I was a student, no, if I was me, I was wondering, hang on, what's the relationship between the Skills Commission, the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations, the ESA? Who were all these bodies? Why couldn't they get their act together on my behalf? But here's the thing. When I Googled the heading career advice last Sunday morning, the online page started with three sponsored sites. The first thing I went to was the Australian Career Test Quiz which uh, offered me, it said, a powerful algorithm to help you choose the best career pathway. And then number two and number three on the list was Swinburne Online and Pivot Coaching, which I discovered was really about mid-career employees. And I found the Your Career and My Future sites in between sites offered by Seek and Hayes and Indeed and Career One and BetterUp and Career Agency and Radstad and Cantley and so on and so on and so on. And when I actually tried out the Your Career subject, I found it was it was pretty good, I have to say, in a modest way. It If I showed an interest in becoming a midwife or an air conditioning mechanic, it did give me useful information on average weekly income, the number of vacancies, the strength of the labour market, available courses. But I've got to say, it took me, I think, about two minutes to realize there were significant uh, challenges and deficiencies. It told me, for example, when I asked that there were no courses available in Australia if I wanted to become an environmental engineer. It told me that there were no vacancies in Australia for installers of home insulation. And that's, of course, we all know it's complete bunkum. So what is going wrong? It's clearly to me, I 
think that the narrow manner in which an occupation as defined comes off with those rather absurd answers. It's possible if I'd gone on to the chat line that these deficiencies could have been resolved. But the fact is that the website, indeed the plethora of websites, actually helped me relatively little unless I had a teacher or a career advisor who was able to assist me in navigating my way through those online resources. And it was readily apparent that students who had come from low SES backgrounds or had non-English speaking parents or were part of an indigenous community would generally have been far less able to access that online support than other students. The digital divide absolutely reinforces educational inequity. So in summary, what needs to happen? Well, here's, here's a five point plan to think about. First, all skills, schools, all schools need to be quite clear, both in their structures and their culture, that all education and employment pathway choices are equally valid and that preferring some vocational offerings um, that sorry that allowing people to study some vocational offerings is of value whether or not a student may sooner or later want to enter higher education the second thing i think is that all teachers need to be explicit with their students about the underlying skills and attributes and demonstrated behaviours that they will need to succeed in the future labour market, anywhere, anywhere in the labour market. We need to make sure that students recognise that those skills, problem solving, communication, collaboration, etc, etc, those skills are going to be required whether our students intend to become a psychologist or a podiatrist or a plumber or a plasterer or a public servant or even a performing artist. Third, all students are entitled to properly resourced, appropriately informed professional career guidance, advice and counselling, whether it's delivered at the school or outside of it. Fourth, that individual guidance should start early, intensify in senior secondary school. Information on careers, in my view, needs to be embedded within the structure of the curricula, not sometimes delivered occasionally is a sort of add-on to study. And fifth, and this is too rarely mentioned, and yet in my view, it's probably the single most important aspect of career guidance at schools. Students need to gain an understanding that seeking career advice and assistance is going to be a part of their long working lives. That in a fast changing labour market, the goal of lifelong learning is meaningless unless it's accompanied by lifelong career advice and lifelong access to skills acquisitions. Students need to be fully apprised that school based career advice is just the beginning of a lifelong habit. What we're introducing them to is a lifelong habit. 
as they progressively upskill, as they change jobs and careers, as they move between industries, as they set up their own businesses. Our career advice must reinforce the understanding that career progression is unlikely to be a linear progress in a world that's being upended by thinking technologies, algorithmic access to information, robotic process automation, machine learning, natural language processes, uh, in which so many of our traditional tasks and memory can be performed by machine. And that's why uh, Careers New South Wales, which was established as a result of a report I did to the New South Wales government, is, I think, an important pilot to be able to demonstrate that we need a partially government-funded counselling and advice service, not just for students as they enter the labour force, but to employees as they seek to work and upgrade their skills. We need to have career advice starting at schools, but which you know you can go to when you're 25 or 35 or 45 or 55 years of age. So I hope I've done enough to convey why beyond curriculum reform, beyond school registration, beyond teachers' professional development, beyond the quality, if you will, of school-based teaching, I am so committed to the importance of career advice within schools because it does seem to me be at the heart of student welfare and student-centred education. It is something, I think, to which we should aspire. And I'm very happy to answer any questions on that. Peter, thank you so much. That's uh, uh, so much in there for us to, to think about. And I can see the questions already starting to come through uh, from people. So we'll pick up as many of those as we can. Can I start with a question where you, you talked a lot about the role of schools and how important it is that schools have a comprehensive opportunity for that's presented to students. If, if and we've got many people online who are working in schools, uh, if you had to give a piece of advice to a school about where best to start, to, to be on the journey towards what you've described as being high quality career advice at school level, uh, any advice on, on how schools should start that journey uh, or build on where they are already? Yeah, so I start with, what I wouldn't do. We must never ever say to, let us say, a 15 year old, you now have to make a choice about your life. <laughs> what we need to say is there will be a range of pathways and possibilities open to you. Follow your interests, follow your passions, and in a sense, then let your career flow from that. Uh, do not believe that at 15 or 16, you have to choose whether you want to go to university or not, whether you really want to study for ATAR or not, whether you want to do general and academic subjects or vocational subjects. My real strong advice is you don't need to do that anymore. The fact is, you know, more and more and more students go to university with vocational intent. I'm not saying they're given vocational education, but you can tell, you know, that's why every university that I know has agreements with just 150, 200 professional associations, because if a student doesn't know that they will get certification, registration, etc. at the end, then they're not interested. So essentially, increasingly, our education has that vocational intent, and it does 
require that mixture of theoretical and practical skills. That's why, again, in New South Wales, I suggested and we're trialling these new institutes of advanced technology, which aim to provide tertiary education, not a dual sector with higher education on one side and vocational on the other, but fully integrated education where you can progressively increase your credential, almost like a degree apprenticeship. So you may acquire your cert four in your first year, an associate's degree in your second, and a degree in your third year. I think we need to think about new ways of tertiary education. And the key, if I'm a teacher, is to get across that that is the future they face. You don't have to make a decision worrying that 18 or 19 years of age, you may have buggered up and your opportunities are gone. We do have a great system of, of pathways. And so that being the case, let students, in a sense, follow what is their interests. And your point about uh, earlier about information, and you, and you gave a really uh, helpful rundown of where uh, sites like My Future and, and, and your career are helpful and where they can perhaps be more effective. And when, when we think about it from a school's perspective, often, often the feedback we get is that the curriculum is very crowded. This is another thing yep. to be put on top of the, the already crowded curriculum, which has swimming safety and dog safety and all sorts of things added into it. How do you see or what advice do you have for overcoming that, that sense that this is a, another thing on top in a crowded curriculum as opposed to what you uh, outlined, which is perhaps a more embedded model? Uh, that is, I think, the most profound question uh, we face. The fact that it is too often thought that if we find time for career education, where's that going to cut into the curriculum, along with you know water safety, um, the, the 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 concept that essentially you're you're eating into time, uh, and and it's similar. How can we do a learning profile for students? Because we we've got to teach the curriculum. No, no, this is it is actually easy if you think about it. All we know and this is a key role, I think, of career teachers, is to help their colleagues understand what is embedded in that curriculum. That if you know, if you're setting an exercise in history, to take an example, and you're getting students to work together, you're getting across to them, this is important, not just because of the history uh, uh, curriculum, but actually, you're also learning there to work together as part of a team. That's very important. So I think jurisdictions are increasingly now trying to say in these senior secondary subjects, what are the underlying skills that we want to get out? They're not addition. We just need to make sure students are aware of that. Similarly, you know, I, I'm not saying that we need to take time out to all students to talk about the way they work shifts at Hungry Jacks and McDonald's, but we need to be aware of that and be able as teachers and as particularly career teachers to say, what are you learning from that experience? Because in a sense, what we're trying to teach you at school is about complex problem solving. But when you work your shifts at Hungry Jacks, what are you learning about complex problem solving there? I think we've got to try and see career counselling advice and guidance, not as something that is an add-on if you've got the time, but actually is fundamental to one of the purposes of the education curriculum we're teaching. And it seems, can I test an idea with you just from what you're saying? Yeah. It seems almost that, that the careers advisors have a dual role. One is that really important and helpful advice they're giving to young people uh, in those early stages of thinking about their careers. 
but potentially an advisory role with their colleagues in classrooms around how they can incorporate career education into the work they're doing already, as opposed to having it as an add-on. I think that's exactly, I, I see two key roles for um, careers teachers that go beyond what we might narrowly see. Uh, the first is that, as I say, you embed in students the idea that this isn't a one-off, you're gonna be doing this your whole life. Actually, we're teaching you now how to try and get careers advice and how to make use. And the second thing is to work with their teachers so that teachers know, for example, that some of these key skills for the future labor market that the teachers are able, other teachers are able to make clear in the way they teach the curriculum that the students understand the underlying skills that they're acquiring at the same time. So partly, yeah, partly is educating students. Partly, I think it's almost educating the whole of the school uh, workforce. And so then drawing in, I'm really interested in how you feel, uh, what you think about how industry can then play a role in that. So we've got our schools and our careers teachers playing a very important role uh, with, with both the students and the colleagues. And where have you seen examples and, and what's it look like when there's a very good partnership with industry playing an important role in this field? We've got to somehow try and make sure the employers and industry become uh, part of the um, solution. And I have to say that sometimes, well, two things happen. One, sometimes that we don't integrate that employer industry experience enough in a way that can excite and interest students. But often we've got to go careful that they can become part of the problem. The reality is that if you have been an employer for 30 years or if you are coming from um, a profession and giving advice, I have to say very often you'll think about the occupation as it is now or even how it's been in the last 20 years. Uh, too often, I think, actually, employers at industry are not very good at imagining what's going to happen in the next 20 years. So again, that's why I think careers advisors can have a key role in that and actually work with employers and industry to understand that, to really get them to focus on well, well, what's horticulture going to look like in 20, 10 or 20 years' time? Why do you think it's going to need more math? than it does now, you know. So uh, what I would like to see is an increasing willingness to think about how to integrate local employers or industry into uh, the career structures uh, within schools in um, a strategic manner, not just dividing in an employer on a particular occasion or prevailing on an industry to provide um, work opportunities, you know, which I think internships, which I think are important. What's missing? I, I actually see that most schools in various ways are actually getting employers and industries involved at the local level. But I have to say it tends to be a lot of ad hocery uh, and not enough strategy. And let me draw in, if I may, the, the third group you talked about is being really important in this space, which was the parents. I think you said that about 50% of the students said uh, that they, their primary source of career advice was their parents. How do you see us being able to better draw in parents into that and, and ensure they've got contemporary knowledge to also be able to be a, a, a helpful advisor in this space? Yeah, I think uh, this is really crucial um, because we talked about careers teachers, not just for students, not but also for teachers and I think also for parents. Um, in some ways, I think a careers advisor has to be able to inform and even mediate between the student and their parent. 
um, we need to be able to say, well, I know you want your son to become a doctor or a lawyer, but actually you're an accountant. But actually their interest is much more in carpentry. And don't worry. So what we I think we've got to do is educate parents, not just about careers, but about school education. I mean, you've seen the surveys, I'm sure, about how many parents get the school certificate and ATAR confused certainly think that the only measure of school success is the ATAR. So I think this, these teachers can play a key role in helping to inform parents and in a way often then to take pressure off some students to be able to follow what they want to do, to, to reassure a parent, look, I, I know you don't want your son to become uh, an electrician, you want him to be an electrical engineer, but don't, don't worry because actually this can quite easily lead to it and that we need to actually go along with what are your child's interest and passion. So it's another key role I think of career advisors is almost both to inform but also to mediate sometimes between students and their parents. Oh, thank you, Peter. And I, I can see some questions coming through that, that I'm just going to switch streams a little bit here. You mentioned uh, uh, very early on in, in your comments, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you characterised how often and how it's far too often that our First Nations people uh, and students are often last or late in the queue when it comes yeah. to, to career opportunities. So thinking about equity and thinking about those, not just the the um, digital equity that you talked about earlier, but equity more generally, do you have any advice for us in terms of how we can help to overcome those equity gaps that exist and those in, in terms of opportunity around careers advice and, and Metro Rural is another one that's coming up in the questions. So I think my starting point is how we can help all those students before almost you get to a particular career. Um, talk about the various skills that you will need for the future, whatever the career decisions you face, these, these underlying skills. And to be able to think, well, how do you, how can you acquire this? You know, uh, I've often thought that the young child who has to look after um, a parent with a disability or um, the child who has to interpret for their mum when she goes to the doctor or the Aboriginal kid in the NT, the boys who have to take time out for men's business or Aboriginal kids who work within the community. Instead of just seeing that as a problem and through, if you like, um, a deficits perception. I think the role of a careers teacher is helping to um, kids to understand that you face these challenges and that's really tough, but just think what you are learning from that. Let's talk about the sort of skills that you're acquiring in doing this. And now let's think of how you could apply those in the workplace. So sometimes I think the starting point is actually getting people to understand what they're learning, even when they think they're, you know, not doing well at school. But nevertheless, they're acquiring skills that will help them. And then you can start to lead them. Well, what sort of interest do you have? How could you apply this in this industry? I, I, I honestly think that quite a lot of this is placing more emphasis on the underlying skills you require and probably less focus on the technical skills that you will need to acquire over time through courses. And can technology help us? And, and have you seen opportunities for technology to be able to help us close some of those gaps? Yeah, well, absolutely. But it needs it needs support. I mean, I was thinking, well, 
this is pretty good for me as I'm looking at these websites. I'm sitting in Canberra. But I'm thinking if I was sitting in most areas, remote and rural, I could, I could get access to this. So if I've got someone to help me. Suddenly, if I've, like, I've got a world of information that is uh, available to me, which I wouldn't have had in the past. But I'm going to need help to navigate. OK, so I think what I'm looking for is a career teacher, not in fact of sort of pigeonholing me and sort of telling me what I should become. I, I want a teacher that's helping me to navigate, including navigating online, what is available, because I do think that opens up opportunities for people who are often disadvantaged uh, as a result of their location. You mentioned earlier about the New South Wales work that you're doing and you're piloting the, the yeah. uh, I think they're in the Institute of Advanced Technology. Institute of Advanced Technology, yeah. Can you, and you told us a little bit about how they're working. Can you tell us what you're learning from that pilot so far? Uh, what are some of the things that are really shining out for you in terms of the opportunity in expanding that kind of model? The first thing is that you can, if there is government leadership, co-design. So... The one that I know um, in Meadowbank involves Macquarie University, UTS, the TAFE, but with industry. And it's, it's, it's the higher vocational industry coming together to design a career structure for in the area of IT. Similarly, I think with Western Sydney University and builders in terms of modern construction. So we're starting to learn that you could, there are different ways in which you can progress to a degree. Now, here's a real problem. You know, 20% of students who start on a degree still haven't completed it after seven years. They've got seven years of debt that's backed up, right? And they still don't have a qualification to count for it. So um, this gives you an opportunity, and I think this is important, in terms of keeping people engaged and inspired at offering progressive uh, credentialing. So I think what we're starting to discover there that, you know, if you can acquire various credentials through a fully integrated theoretical practical course, then if you want, go back to the workplace, return a year later. In other words, have that flexibility, you can actually do it. And I don't think it will just be these small pilots. I think now that you know, uh, universities and TAFEs themselves are starting to look at ways they can do this. I was quite impressed when I went to the UK last year at the takeoff of what are called um, degree apprenticeships. 20% uh, of UK apprenticeships are now degree apprenticeships. As if you're studying chartered surveying or accounting or nursing, police, you can actually... You, you apply through your employer, you work 80% of the time, you study in blocks 20% of the time, the education is free because actually your employer is paying and you are actually integrating what you do at the workplace with what you're studying. Now again, these are all different ways of doing it. I just think we need to start to think of different ways in which we can demonstrate that you don't have to make this choice between whether you're going to a university or whether you're going to a TAFE. We know, incidentally, that far more people who go to a university then transfer after their degree and go and do vocational education than the number of people who use vocational education pathways to get through to higher education. People know, young people know, that you actually need this variety of skills and you need to do 
often employer provided digital knowledge as well. So in a sense, what we've got, the good thing is I think young people are starting to vote with their feet and institutions, which tend to be relatively slow and convert and, and conservative, are now having to start to catch up. And I think the professions, I agree with you, I think the professions are starting to have a big impact on that. In, in, I heard Absolutely. it um, put to me recently that, that um, many, if not most, tertiary degrees are now inherently vocational because they have a professional yeah. certification at the end, whether it be accounting yeah. or engineering or, or yeah. pharmacy or something Correct. like that. I, I'm all in favour of a person, you know, studying anything at school that they want and going to university and doing poetry or politics, okay? It doesn't, but the fact is, that increasingly students by their choices are choosing to study vocationally and very often they do not see a great difference between the vocational route that they go through university or the vocational route that they can go through from what's called vocational education and training. We, If I've got one plea is I think we've got to start to reimagine what a genuine tertiary education looks like when people leave school. And structurally, do you have a view on whether the AQF, the Australian Qualifications Framework, helps us with that or whether in its current form it actually potentially is a barrier? It's a great question. Uh, look, I think it is useful, but here is a problem. I am worried that the most exciting innovation that I've seen in education in the last 10 years has probably been the growth of um, digital courses, short courses, and um, you know, short course credentialing and the ability of people to put that in together, the package that they want with a great deal of, of freedom. So I think that's got, you know, enormous potential uh, to change things. Again, though, we need advice. You know, it's how does a student without not be able to provenance what is the quality of an offering online unless they've got someone who can be able to help them do it? say well this is useful but this was this is really not very useful at all um you know th this will help your career route again a bit like online people need help because there is just this plethora of um often online but not necessarily online uh, short courses now with these um you know digital with with these short credentials i think that's exciting now the, here's the thing my worry is if the AQF comes in too heavily on those um, short courses and their credentials, then I am worried it will kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. We've got to go careful here. And frankly, many of the people who are doing these courses actually don't really care if they're Cert 3 level or 4, AQF 4 or 5. They just think it's useful, often because their employer has told them that they are useful things to do. You know, often I found when people, one of the interesting things was I, I was the chair of NCVR for a while, and it always used to interest me that students who had started a Cert 3 or Cert 4 and done a couple of units and then dropped out, their um, view of the course was as equally positive as those who stayed on to finish the 3 or 4. Okay, what is going on here? What you realise is actually many of the people who come in to do those courses are coming in because of the value of the course. They are themselves not very concerned about whether this is Cert 3 or Cert 4. They're interested in this at the moment for what I'm doing is really useful. I'm going to come in and do that. 
and then I'll think about what to do next. And when they thought about use or utility of that program, I imagine it was more often than not connected to employment outcomes or uh, career progression. Yeah, it is. And the danger is, of course, that I'm all in favour of, you know, students doing courses that are offered by various employers. But I would prefer them, unless they actually know they're going to work for that employer, to do something similar but is more generic. I don't want them to to do something that's then going to tie them to a particular employer. I'd rather that the skills they're acquiring will give them much greater uh, flexibility and strength within the labour market. And one last one, Peter, there's a bit of a theme coming through around, you've mentioned learner profiles uh, yeah. and, and you talked about them and, and you talked about them particularly in the context of being able to capture who a young person is, what they know and what they can do through the various experiences they have in their life that are not necessarily formal education. Correct. Are you optimistic about the opportunity that we will have in Australia to really genuinely develop learner profiles for our young people? Well, I know we're piloting them in New South Wales. I think in South Australia and the Northern Territory. I know I'm in WA at the moment, and I know they're doing a review right now of senior secondary pathways. Um, the reason I pause is because it goes back to a question that you asked me about, you know, careers advice being an add-on. I worry that teachers will think this is, they are so burdened and overwhelmed, including with far too much administration, that they will think this is another burden. My God, we've got all this, and now you want us me to stay behind on a Tuesday night with students and help them develop their learner profile. Again, what will give me success is if I think we can fit that within the curriculum they're teaching, that it just becomes a part of it and the discussions that are held rather than being an extra workload to be completed. And I would like, I think, I've been thinking about, but I would like to keep it relatively informal. I would like students to complete a student profile, but I don't want it graded. I don't want it marked. I want it as a device that helps students understand the sort of skills they will acquire in the labour market in the next 10 or 20 years and how to be able to assess their development against those skills. That's all I want. It's almost to be able to understand the template. Well, Peter, I think that's just a terrific note to think to finish on. Uh, to all those people who put questions into the chat, and we've had hundreds, literally hundreds of them, I apologise we didn't have time to get to them all, uh, but we have recorded this webinar and it will be available on the My Future site. But let me just say, Peter, uh, we're just so grateful for your insight, for your passion for what this work and everything you've done to date to help advance the work of career education for young people in Australia, particularly from an with that equity lens that you, you have over everything that you do in this space. Uh, we know that there's many career practitioners and teachers online. We also know there's policymakers and, and our colleagues at the National Career Institute are with us as well on this webinar. So for us to collectively hear uh, have the benefit of your thoughts on this and your experience and your practical understanding of what works and get to have your advice on where we might uh, need to go to if we're going to improve the situation. We're very grateful. We thank you very much uh, and we look forward to being able to uh, share some of the outcomes of the work we do with you down the track. Thank you again. I look, no, I look forward to you sharing me those questions and I do have a lot of passion, more passion than insight, but I do want to say to everybody who's joined us, I am so impressed 
or by the work that you're doing. And I hope you've gathered how important to me, the, the how relevant, how significant is the work you're undertaking. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.